Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm thrilled you could join us here today. We're going to have an interesting conversation about end-of-life care and connecting to the best providers for your needs. Uh, but before I introduce you to, the, to our guest today, I always like to do a little bit of housekeeping. So for those of you that are new, Alzheimer's Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people in the trenches. And, um, you know, this all started because my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years. And I just thought, gosh, there's got to be more resources and and tools out there for me to tap into. I also want to thank the Mark Arneson Band. They do our opening music called Clarion Call, and you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. I also want to give a shout out to Artist Senior Living of Potomac. Um, Today, actually this evening, you can participate if you'd like in a caregiver survival camp that I'm putting on, um, finding out about the realities of dementia-friendly, you know, family tips and tools. That'll be at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And you can sign up for that by calling 241-293. 0155. And then on Thursday, um, they're also going to sponsor another program. This is uh, Tools for Dementia Professionals, Understanding and Supporting the Families We Serve. And that one will start at 530 Eastern Time. Go till 7. And you can call uh, 240-293-0244 for information on that. And then with COVID, I know everyone's feeling isolated. I do want to mention uh, two groups that I facilitate conversations with. One is sponsored by Arthur's Senior Care. Um, It's called Arthur's Memory Cafe. So it's for people with dementia and their care partners. We get together the second and the fourth Wednesday of each month. And that starts at 2 p.m. Eastern. That would be 1 Central. Uh, 12 Mountain Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Again, on the second and the fourth Wednesdays of the month, you can reach out to me at radio at Alzheimer Speaks, and I can get you the Zoom link for that. And then, um, let's see, uh, Brookdale North Oaks, along with the Shoreview Parks and Rec Center, uh, sponsor a in-person program for caregivers. It's our Caregiver Connect. And we meet the last Wednesday of each month in Shoreview, Minnesota, at the community center from 10 to 11 a.m. Now, last month, we actually did a virtual, and I'm not sure what will happen uh, this month in January because of COVID, so we'll just play it by ear. But you can call 763 
913-613-6140 for more information on that program. Let me see. I've got a few others here. Uh, Dementia Map, of course, I have to mention that we've got about 150 categories you can search. It's wonderful for families and professionals alike to find resources, products, and tools and services that can support you on your personal journey or as a professional. And then Picnic Health has an important uh, research project they're working on for Alzheimer's disease. And you can go to picnichealth.com forward slash speaks and sign up. And when you do that, you'll get $25. Picnic Health what they actually do is they collect and they digitize all of your medical records into one account, and then you can consent to share um, anonymized data from your record with medical researchers. And by them examining that real, real, real world data from your personal records, researchers can find answers that might not have been found in clinical trials. So if that is something you're interested in, again, go to picnichealth.com forward slash speaks. And if you want to register your loved one with dementia, you can do that as well. Uh, Last one I want to mention is there's an opportunity for libraries to get a $2,500 grant for either um, starting or expanding services to serve people living with dementia. And we have many dementia-friendly communities out there and many dementia-friendly libraries. So um, if you're interested in information on that, just reach out to me again at radio at Alzheimer's Speaks. That will be the easiest route because the uh, URL is fairly lengthy. We're going to hear from the Footbar Walker, and then we are going to be right back with our guest, Ben Zarr. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. It absolutely benefits the patient and the caregiver both, and that's the beauty of it. It's so easy to use. It folds up just like a dream. I got it in and out of the car without any effort at all. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Foot Bar Walker was designed not only to assist the patient, but also the caregiver. It's like having a portable pull bar everywhere you go. Patients have more control of their motion and pain management, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. Caregivers, put your foot down and quit hurting your own health. No matter which side of the foot bar walker you're on, it's a win-win. Call 731-924-4444 and visit our factory showroom in Paris, Tennessee, or visit us online at thefootbarwalker.com. Well, I'm thrilled to be back with you, and I can't wait to introduce you to our guest today. We are going to be talking with Ben Dar, and he is the co-founder of uh, End of Life Care Platform uh, for Caregivers. And, you know, he's all about connecting people with the best providers for their needs. And so I just want to welcome you, Ben. Um, I'm thrilled to have you with us. We're going to be talking about your company, Opening Caregiving. And um, so welcome. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Thanks for having me, Lori. And thank you for your many years of uh, dedication, helping people caring for and living with dementia. Well, when it hits your own family, it hits you hard. <laughs> And you yeah. realize you realize the pluses and the minuses uh, in the industry that's serving you, and so I just felt like I had to 
step in and see what I could do to improve things for other families. Now, Ben, uh, before I get to asking you uh, the questions that I've designed for this program, I always like to ask uh, people if they have been personally touched by dementia in their own family or circle of friends. Yeah, well, um, actually, somewhat recently, my grandmother, um, who's actually in Israel, she was um, diagnosed with dementia, and it's been difficult, um, especially during the pandemic, not being able to um, to go there and see her, um, especially hearing from uh, some of my family there that it is starting to progress um, a little faster. So um, definitely hoping to get there soon so I can see her. Um, but yeah, that, that was a more recent development. Okay, wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, I want to ask, you know, what made you step into this space and, and um, you know, what helped you decide to kind of dedicate your time into helping people, you know, navigate end-of-life uh, care? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. Um, yeah, so over the last few years, um, both my grandmother and my aunt entered their end-of-life stages Um and it was a really difficult time for my family, and I started to get really frustrated uh, just being so uneducated about uh, end-of-life care and caregiving and trying to help but not being super helpful. Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of gave me the realization that this is the first time of um, probably many times where I'll, I'll either uh, have to be um, a caregiver or a care recipient, and those will be some of the most meaningful moments of my life. Um, and I wanted to use my technology background to help um, just make those moments easier for myself, my family, and for every other caregiver um, that and care recipient that will inevitably um, get to that to that point. Um, so it was it was really that realization that this isn't a one-time thing and and that it it is a really really impactful moment or period of your life. Mm-hmm. How would you define end of life care? Because you know some people think okay they've got hours and other people are thinking well it, it's coming you know yeah <laughs> and it, it might be a few years out. Um, can you define that for our listeners? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think it's changing a little bit. Um, if you asked uh, someone, you know, five or 10 years ago, I think they would say the last few months of someone's life. But um, with palliative care growing and becoming more um, affordable for um, certain demographics, it's it's now turning to more of a, you know, multi-year um, approach to the, the final years of someone's life um, and making those as comfortable and um and according to their wishes as possible. Um, so I do, I personally look at it as, you know, not just the last weeks or months of someone's life, but, you know, the 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 time leading up to hospice care. So hopefully in pa- some sort of palliative care. And then hopefully hospice care is not a last minute decision in the last weeks of life, but more of a, you know, transitional phase and um, a period for them to, you know, find meaning and for the family to, um, find spiritual meaning um, and and really kind of settle into what's happening versus it being a rushed um, experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I should have you define hospice and palliative care for our audience because I think a lot of people are familiar with hospice and they think palliative is hospice, but there is a difference. 
And so why don't we why don't we kind of clear clear that up before we dive in deeper? Yeah. So you know, it's changing in real time. Um, currently, most people who are on hospice care um, can't receive curative treatment. Um, so hospice care is really meant um, to um, like for to improve quality of life and to make sure that um, the care recipient is comfortable um, in their final months. Um, palliative care also has that approach of, um, you know, emphasizing quality of life and comfort. Um, but you can, um, depending on where you are in um, a, in someone's condition, you can also receive curative care. Um, now that is starting to change a little and the, and the lines are being blended because, um, you know, some people are nervous to go on hospice care if they can't, um, if they're not allowed to uh, try a experimental treatment or, you know, if they, um, if they, if they just don't want to commit to, to not trying any other cure. Um, mm-hmm. th- the unfortunate misconception around that is that you can, you know, go off hospice care at any point. So choosing hospice care is not, you know, is not a one-time decision that you can't go, that you can't turn around on. Um, but in order to increase, you know, utilization of hospice care, um, there's starting to be some changes in um, the way legis- uh, the way um, Medicare is talking about it and providers are talking about it to make it more of a um, continuum of care from palliative to hospice care um, and, and kind of blend the lines a little more so more people have access to it. Um, but currently under hospice care, you, you can't really um, – uh, enroll in any sort of curative treatment. So when you're talking curative treatment, does that mean even like an antibiotic, not necessarily like chemo and radiation? No, you can. Um, it's curative to like the primary diagnosis um, of the mm-hmm. of the care recipient. So it would be things like chemo um, or radiation. Okay. Okay. It's just good for people to to understand, you know, the the vast, uh, you know, um, applications that are out there. And again, this is ever changing. And I know one yeah. thing that I found was different doctors have different perspectives on both of these, and yeah. if they if they will refer or not. Have you have you seen that be an issue too, where some doctors are are more comfortable than not making a referral? Yeah, definitely. And there's there's different um, education levels around hospice care among physicians. Um, unfortunately, it's often not required in their training to have a deep understanding of hospice care. Um, so it definitely varies widely the point at which um, physicians recommend hospice. Um, and that's something we're trying to do at Open Caregiving is try and help educate both um, caregivers and care recipients, as well as physicians and people who um, can help influence caregivers um, to make, um, you know, decisions that are most in line with the wishes of the people they care for. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us about um, open caregiving? And and I always like to ask people how they pick their title um, of their company <laughs> and, you know, their name. And then um, how does it work? Yeah. So the question about the name, um, uh, my co-founder, Dan, uh, he actually came up with it really just as, at the genesis of starting it. Um, 
you know, we wanted every, all the information and resources and quality to be, quality scores to be open to everyone and be transparent um, and accessible. Uh, so that was kind of the genesis and we just stuck with it. Um, open is the term that we both uh, open anything. So uh, from a technology point of view, open source means like technology that is open to the public and can people can build on top of it. Um, it's just a term that has, uh, has permeated different parts of our lives and we want to bring it into uh, open caregiving since it's such a collaborative um, effort. And mm -hmm. then um, what we do is, and this is a growing list of things um, that we do, but um, at the core is like resources for uh, end-of-life care. So everything that you would need to know about hospice care, what it is, when to consider it, how to have, you know, these end-of-life conversations, um, preparation once you choose, once you, you and your loved one decide that it's time for hospice care, and then um, information also revolving around grief and bereavement. Um, so we have this whole guide to hospice with um, these different chapters. And then um, in addition to that, we have a full caregiving, caregiving glossary that jumps into, uh, you know, different aspects of caregiving from um, home and community-based services to um, different aspects of Medicare or Medicaid that people um, often get confused about. Um, so all those types of things. Um, and then, so that's kind of our resources and education part of the site. Um, and then we have um, another core part of the site, which is a hospice search platform. And the thought behind this was that when you search for a hospice provider on the internet, um, you often don't get results that help you make a smarter decision. Sometimes you'll see Google reviews or Yelp reviews, but these are often, um, you know, people who had an extreme experience, either good or bad, and um, not always the most trustworthy. So what we decided to do was take um, the available information that Medicare publishes on quality scores um, and make those super accessible to uh, caregivers that are searching for the, the best provider um, for the person that they're caring for. So we make those, we make that data very easy to understand. Um, and we make it so if your priority um, is, you know, is making sure you, you choose a provider that excels in um, spiritual, spiritual care and religious care. And also, for example, um, getting, giving timely help we show you which providers excel in those categories um, and which providers, you know, excel in other categories or who excels in all those categories. So we try and make it um, as, as uh, simple as possible to pick the best provider for what you're looking for. Okay. Well, and it is confusing and it is um, complicated because so many families don't have this conversation until it's yeah. too late, and then they're kind of second-guessing, oh, is this what mom or dad would want, or, you know, my spouse, because we never really, we, we really avoided the topic, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Um, yeah. And then and then there's all that added guilt of, am I doing the right thing, and, you know, am I really meeting their wishes when you never had those conversations? So, I, you know, I like that you've got the educational resources there where people can kind of search. Do you have anything that helps them have a conversation about this topic so, so the patient can be involved? Yeah. So um, 
I am just pulling up the name. Um, so on our how to have end of life conversations um, guide, we talk a lot about, um, you know, how to have the conversation. And then we also link um, to this, uh, to the conversation project, um, which does a phenomenal job, um, you know, going even deeper on, to, on um, how to have a conversation from many different angles. Um, mm -hmm. So we didn't want to, we didn't want to, they've done such a good job that we didn't want to try and, re, you know, rewrite what they've done. Um, so mm -hmm. we, we have a lot of information and then we link to them for, um, you know, really tactical ways to start the conversation and how to respond to certain, um, you know, disagreements or um, confusion um, and that type of stuff. Okay. There's, um, and, and I don't know if you've heard of Compassion and Choices, but they have a great yeah. um, program and especially dementia related where it, they help you with your healthcare directives in terms of if mm. this happens, do I want that? If I want that, what if this and that happens? You know, what are, yeah. you know, what are your priorities? And I know for myself, I mean, I, I haven't been um, diagnosed with dementia, but Lord only knows my mom lived with it for 30 years. I could have mm -hmm. it, but I went in and I filled that out because it's like, and it, it could apply to heart attack, car accidents, all kinds of situations. But just to be able to have, you know, let your loved ones know what you want. Um, yeah. You know, these these conversations are are deep and many, and there is such a, like I said, such a stigma about palliative care and hospice, and people thinking either that they can't afford it, or they're not ready yet, um, and they don't they don't understand the umbrella support that it's not just for the person who's sick, but yeah. you know they really help the family and those caring for that person as well, wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean, I can, I completely agree. And to your point about having the conversations, it's the same thing. It's, it's really important not only for um, the, the care recipient, but also for the caregivers not know they, it's one of the most difficult positions to be in, not knowing if you're making the right decision for someone. So the best thing you could do for them is, is um, you know, share your um, priorities and preferences beforehand. Um, and mm -hmm. it, it makes that uh, ex experience a lot, um, a lot better. And um, it, it makes a caregiver feel good to know that they're following what you wanted. Um, mm -hmm. And then to your point about misconceptions about hospice care, it's, it's one of the things we, we spend the most time doing, trying to, to educate, um, you know, everyone within Healthcare on the provider side, and um, you know, caregivers and and care recipients, that hospice is not a place you go to die. It's it's a place where you go to find comfort and um, comfort for everyone involved: the family, the care recipient, um, friends, and people who enter hospice care earlier rather than later. Often um, are so happy that they you know they entered it earlier. Um, and we're able to have, you know, a that transition in life um, mm -hmm. to to and and not have it be rushed. I mean, and yeah, it's 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 really it's really unfortunate that there's still a lot of misconceptions. Um, and I think that's kind of why the lines between hospice and palliative care are starting to blend because people are realizing that it can't be so. Um, one of the ways to educate people is to make it less of a rigid, um, a rigid thing, 
you know. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that I, I guess kind of irritates me with the conversation is, you know, we talk about end of life, and I and I get that, but it's really about quality of life and, and comfort of care at that mm-hmm. end of life. And and those are the two important factors that I think people are missing. You know, for I remember, you know, both my my parents were on hospice um, when they died, and I was shocked. Like when they're like, "Oh, well, we'll get a liquid medication because they can't take a pill anymore." And I'm like, "Well, why the heck didn't anyone say that earlier?" I mean, we yeah. had to get to this point and struggle with her medications because she was having difficulty swallowing. When this is this is common accessible, you know, medication adjustment, and yet, mm-hmm. you know, when you're dealing with those professionals, they have such great insight. Um, I think they're much more in tune to pain levels and signs yeah. of such. And um, I mean, who wants to be in pain? Who wants to be uncomfortable? You know, mm-hmm. um, bringing in joy, really having staff that are compassionate too, I think um, can add such quality of life in and of itself when they still are treating you like a human being and not just some, some task that they have to do and being able to support, support families there. What has really surprised you about hospice and palliative care now that you're, you know, full in on this field? Yeah. um, A few things. Um, I think the first working with uh, a lot of hospice providers, um, it's been amazing to see how the industry really attracts people that genuinely want to see things improve for the people in their end of life stages. Kind of like you were saying, um, it, it, it's people are just so collaborative um, and trying, willing to try anything to um, you know improve this period of people's lives. Um, so that's been really refreshing. You don't see that in um, in every part of healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one other um, one other like part of that is seeing that uh, hospice care is really tailored to um, the preferences of. Um, the the care recipient and the family um, more Mm -hmm. so than I think other types of um, other types of care. And I think that's so important because um, caregiving trajectories and, you know, patient trajectories are as diverse as the people involved um, and are really shaped by, you know, family relationships, um, cultural norms, expectations, socioeconomic status, um, and, it's it's been amazing to see uh, how hospice providers across the board really take everything into consideration um, and don't just like treat everyone in like a one size fits all manner. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's been just like really eye opening, and I think a lot of other parts of healthcare could learn from that. Oh, I I totally agree. They're just it's like they're a different breed out there. Um, and typically what I have witnessed too is the calmness that they bring to a family that's under just mm-hmm. such grief and duress and stress. Um, and they, you know, they get all the family dynamics. So, I mean, if you're, if you're having a feud with, within the family, uh, there's nothing they haven't seen and yeah. can help you deal with it. Um, and just to tell you, you're you're not alone in that situation makes a difference. 
to so to so many people or being able to be there for the person when a family member is is just um unable to because they're they're mm-hmm. grieving so much you know uh yeah yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing um they they also i think their follow up is incredible as well you know even after somebody passes they yeah. don't it's like their job's not done they're still checking on you for a year you know mm-hmm. i think it i think a lot of them it's 13 months they go they go that one month over and people are shocked but they're honored to be remembered you know yeah yeah and um, and yeah and i've seen providers starting to get very creative with figuring out the best ways to support um families um in in those uh grieving in that grieving period after their loved one passes um there i've seen providers just trying new things trying to embrace technology and community um especially during covid where when it's been difficult to to get together um so i completely agree it's uh it's a really big part of the equation that uh, people sometimes forget about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would actually like to see them incorporate something that we've done for dementia. Um, when someone has passed, we created a caregiver reentry program because so mm. many people are so lost because their their whole world has just been focused on caring for someone else. And once that person's gone, they, they don't know who they are anymore. A lot of times mm-hmm. they've lost you know, connections to their own friends and, and families and time has passed. I remember one woman going, gosh, I, I'm going shopping. Everything in my closet's out of date. And I, I can't even shop because I don't know what's in. <laughs> you know, wow. I, don't, I mean, it was just, I think helping people know that um, that they're not alone. And, and the grief um, groups are fine, but usually those are, you know, eight weeks and then you're kind of kicked to the curb again. And that's what I hear from mm-hmm. families is just like, you know, it was helpful, but it didn't connect me to my community. Um, mm-hmm. And I and I think that's one of the things that people, people are looking for there. What have been some of the most impactful memories for you in starting Open Caregiving? Yeah, so um, I would say probably the most impactful has been um so we I started open caregiving um with actually two of my friends Dan and David um I started working on it um in the summer of 2020 um so about a little over 18 months ago and then last summer um summer of 2021 um one of my best friends is actually battling a rare autoimmune liver disease um that progressed to the point of him needing a liver transplant. Um, and so after spending a year working with countless caregivers, um, I was very aware of the physical and emotional suffering that uh, individuals with a serious chronic condition um, and their families experience when the condition quickly progresses. So, um, so while he needed a uh, liver transplant, he went on the transplant waiting list but the probability of um, uh, someone living a you know full and healthy life is higher if they get a liver faster. Um, mm-hmm. So I actually, um, over, uh, this past summer, I actually um, volunteered to donate half of my liver to, to my best friend. 
Um, and it was, it was quite the experience from, from many, um, from many points of view. I was obviously mm-hmm. extremely grateful to have had the opportunity to, to help my best friend, but also really thankful for the sense of empathy I developed, um, during the recovery process. And, um, I really gained this humbling perspective of having to rely on others for activities of daily living and uh, witnessed like the firsthand effort it takes to be a caregiver from the, mm-hmm. from the care recipient point of view. Um, and that added so much more meaning to, uh, you know, just my everyday work, having really gone through some of it. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously I was fortunate enough to, to after a few months kind of be back to myself again and be able to do everything. Um, but mm-hmm. those first few weeks, especially where, um, I was pretty reliant on um, my girlfriend and my parents and my sister for everything was um, was quite a quite an experience for um, you know for the work that I'm doing and and really connected me closer to why it's so important that uh, that we help caregivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's well, it, it, like you said, it puts you in a whole different light in terms of of what somebody is going through, you know, it's, it's really easy a lot of times for us to want to help and give care, but most of us don't like being cared for, you know, cause it, and not that we don't want to be cared for, but we don't like being sick where we can't, where we lose our independence. <laughs> and, and so mm-hmm. there's this pushback of I can do it myself and, and all of those things um, that come into play that emotionally you have to grapple with and, and yeah. work your way through them. And, and again, that's something we don't really talk a whole heck of a lot about. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of that um, ignorance is bliss. It's not going to happen to me or my family. You know, a lot yeah. of us try to, go, try to go into that mode. And, yeah, uh, completely. And that doesn't, yeah, and that's not honest. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. And all, like you said, all of those nuances um, that you don't realize until you're actually in the experience, um, was really uh, eye-opening for me. Um, mm-hmm. There's even after going through the experience, the number one thing I learned is that I still don't really know what it's like for someone else because every experience is so different, um, mm-hmm. and that that's a very like humbling thing to realize that you really need to listen to every single person. Um, no matter how much you do know, you still you just you don't know what they're going through. Um, and yeah, so it was it, it was probably the most memorable experience so far, just in terms of um, obviously for my personal, uh, just personally, but also um, just for the work that we're doing, and um, you know, adding another level of meaning to to why it's so important. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that is important. You know, you acknowledge that everybody's journey is different, and so often we. You know, we don't like things that complicated. It's just like we we want one story so that we can wrap our heads around it and we can control it and Mm -hmm. fix it. And, you know, that's not life. We're all individuals. And no matter what you're going through, no matter what disease or illness you might have, it's going to crop up different because all of our bodies are different. Our immune systems are different. Our environments are different. Our, um, you know, our... uh, our network around us is different. And mm-hmm. so it's going to ebb and flow. And it is, you know, any illness, I believe, 
is bigger than just the person. You know, it, it affects everybody around them as mm-hmm. well. And so to have these difficult conversations um, that I really don't think have to be difficult, but there's, <laughs> for whatever reason, we have this huge stigma about death and dying, and yet anyone you ask says, yeah, I know I'm not going to live forever. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I kind of shake my head and go, why? Why has this been so difficult? to have this conversation when we all know realistically, you know, we're not getting out of this place alive. So why don't yeah. we want to plan? You know, we're so obsessed in this life with control. Why don't we want to control how we exit? I, it just, I don't, I, I still haven't been able to figure that one out because I'm, I guess I'm just one that's not afraid of that conversation. And I, mm-hmm. I, I talk about it, um, openly, even when people are uncomfortable, even like with my daughter, I said, no, I want to be cremated. And she's like, I don't, I don't want to burn you. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. she's like, honey, let me be small once in my life. It's okay. <laughs> I don't want to take up space. I, you know, um, it, it, we talk about all of care, you know, but it's it just, it, it alleviates so much for those who are caring for you. If you can have, if you can be on the same page, with, you know, yes, I want to, I want to pull palliative care in because I know not only are they going to support me, but they're going to, they're going to help support you and mm-hmm. and give you some time back as well. Same with hospice care. You know, this is a journey together. And yet I think so many people don't, don't look at it like that, but it really, in, in my, my view, it, it is a, it, it's a caring journey together. Would you agree yeah. or disagree with that? No, I, I completely agree with all of it. And I think back to um, the point we discussed earlier about quality of life, I think having these discussions earlier, even before, you know, anyone is sick or anyone is a caregiver, you know, increases everyone's quality of life. Um, I've heard from a bunch of people that by having the conversation really early, um, they felt a weight lifted off their shoulders that they didn't even know existed, both on the um caregiver and the future care recipient point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it is weighing on a lot of people without them realizing. Um, And then obviously when you actually have to make decisions, then it's weighing on you like crazy. So um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think education around why the conversations are important and how they can lead to not only your preferences being fulfilled, but also, um, you know, your quality of life being better and the time you have now can really drive the conversation because, uh, you know, everyone wants better quality of life in the present, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think it's it's really a – it's people it's, – it's really an, a, um, an education uh, puzzle of figuring out how to best um, approach people in a way that, that they're open to listening and then what is the best way to – you know, talk about these these subjects that people don't necessarily want to, you know, focus a lot of attention on uh, on mm-hmm. any given random day. Well, and, you know, I think about, too, so many people, uh, you know, are divorced or have never been married. They live alone. Um, and, and they really worry about who who is going to be my team. Mm-hmm. You know, who who's going to care for me? And so, um, creating that care team, which, you know, maybe it's not family. Maybe you're estranged from your family. Maybe it's your neighbors. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's coworkers. 
maybe there really isn't anybody that you feel comfortable with. You, you still should think about having someone be that power of attorney and your, you know, and able to make your health care choices for you. And maybe that's hiring somebody out if that's what mm-hmm. you need to do, you know, in that case. But ignoring it's not going to make it any better. Um, yeah. And so I, I just really think these these conversations are so important. Now, on your website here, if people, you know, go to opencaregiving.com, I mean, right away you're going to pop up. They've got great information on advanced directives, Medicare, Medicaid, because financing is a big piece of this puzzle. I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, home health care, hospice, um, caregiver therapy, uh, caregiver support groups, respite care. And, you know, there you have even more guides as you go into this, like what the heck is acute care? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what, what's an adult day? You've got a whole glossary of terms uh, for people to sort through. And I'm a big believer in glossaries because I, yeah. you, you just, you don't know what you don't know until you don't know it. <laughs> yeah. And, I think, and so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how, that's actually how we met through your uh, dementia map uh, glossary. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, it's just, uh, it's so important that we can't have enough resources to, to help people find their way. I love, I love this. You've got a section for caregiving stories from your community, finding intimacy and meeting in the end of life. You know, don't mm-hmm. push that away. That's precious. You know, there's there's still ways to do things and to be able to choose happiness despite um, circumstances, you know, helping families through grief. You've got tons of great, great stories here, um, as well as, you know, putting in your zip code to find your best uh, hospice needs, you know, in your area for people. Um, again, I, I just. I, I give you kudos for for pulling this all together. How long did it take you to build the website and and fill all of the information in? Um, yeah, well, I appreciate the I appreciate the kudos. Um, you know, it's 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 inspiring to see the work that people like you've done over the last decade, um, and it definitely uh, definitely influences kind of um, you know our our approach to to um serving caregivers and care recipients so i appreciate that from you um it's taken us you know we've done we do everything one piece at a time so first we um built the caregiving glossary then we worked on the caregiver's guide to hospice um all all along that path um we were um, interviewing caregivers and having them share their stories, um, both to share with our community, but also to help inform us on things we may have overlooked or just didn't understand. Um, and then more recently, we built the search tool, um, started working with some of Medicare's quality quality data to incorporate that. Um, so, you know, all in all, it's been about 18 months so far, but, um, you know, we built one thing at a time launched it, got feedback, um, and understood what caregivers wanted help with next and kind of went and went there. Um, so everything's been driven by what we hear people need the most help with. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of what's driving our, our future steps as well. 
Well, fantastic. And and uh, like Van said, they are part of Dementia Map, um, or you can go right to, you know, opencaregiving.com, you know, to get more information from them directly. Where do you see the biggest areas of improvement in end-of-life care or maybe needs in end-of-life care as well? Yeah, um, I think I you know it's a tough question. There are a lot of areas that are, you know, there's a lot of great stuff happening, but there's always an area for improvement, especially when you're talking about such a serious um, subject. Um, I always gravitate towards um, two things. One is better feedback loop between um, caregivers, care recipients, and providers. Um, mm-hmm. Currently, that feedback loop is quite slow, um, and it's mostly done through Medicare surveys, which is mm-hmm. they're they're continuously improving them, and they are doing a good job. But I don't think it it should be the only channel of feedback. Um, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, that's how providers are going to improve, um, by understanding what they're doing well, where they can, um, where they can improve. Um, mm-hmm. and that feedback comes in many different ways and, you know, rigid quality scores aren't the only way, um, I think providers can get better. Um, so that's one thing we're thinking about at open caregiving. How can we help facilitate that feedback loop? Um, another area I think uh, just from my personal experience and from hearing from others, is education among young, younger generations um, that are increasingly filling the primary caregiver role, um, education around hospice and palliative care. A lot of, you know, a lot of people in their 20s don't even know what hospice care is, um, mm-hmm. let alone, like, when they should think about it or um, why they, you know, why they it's it's helpful to know about some of these things before you actually need them um mm-hmm. so and i also think it helps with those conversations um you know being introduced to the concept of hospice care and why it's important um at why it's important um it, it naturally flows into oh well you know then we need to have these conversations before you know we ever get close to that stage so I think figuring out how to educate younger generations, um, especially as the um, baby boomer generation starts to, you know, to age, um, is is really important and something that needs to start now um, before um, before baby boomers, you know, enter their their eighties. Um, so that's something that's something else we're thinking about, and um, it, and it's it's a lot more difficult than just saying. You know, let's let's try and let's educate millennials. It's uh, there's a lot of strategy and um, complexity to it. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, for sure, for sure. And like you said, there's always there's always areas that we can improve on. I think I think even one of the ways in terms of how we give feedback. You know, everyone's doing the surveys and stuff, but so many people miss being able to talk to somebody. <laughs> I think yeah. we can pick up a lot on a conversation and yet I'm the first to admit if I don't know your number I don't answer it <laughs> you know yep, because yep. AM calls and stuff so you know there's just uh there's there's so many different hoops that we all have to I guess jump around and and figure out um figure out better ways but you know one of the best ways is for consumers to speak up 
and mm-hmm. let it be known, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, that's how we protect what's working, and that's how we um, become fluid to make changes to, to better better serve. And, you know, if you have a complaint, give some ideas on how to improve it, too. I mean, you're yeah. the end. You're the receiver. So how would you like to be treated? You know, what options would you like to have? Um that information is just as important, if not even more so, than speaking up that something's not working, because that gets mm-hmm. us closer, you know, to making making change there. Um, anything that we've we've missed um, that you want to cover? I just, uh, like I said, I, I love the work that you're doing. I think this is a really important topic, and I I wish more people would be less afraid and um, really educate themselves because even if you don't need it somebody you know is going to need this information and the more mm-hmm. resourceful we can be for each other you know the easier it is to stay in community and build our community and give one another comfort with that. yeah so yeah i completely agree no i think it, was, we covered everything i think we covered okay. everything um the only thing i would say is that uh you know uh, uh, educating yourself on these topics and having those difficult discussions, you know, much earlier than you need to really makes, you know, life richer in the moment. Um, and it, uh, you know, some people say to me, like, isn't it really difficult to you know, spend a lot of time um, working uh, with hospice providers and caregivers? And I always say to them that it, it makes, you know, the, there's so much amazing stuff that happens at the end of life um, and so many amazing people that devote all of their time and energy and put, you know, um, put the people in front of their own needs. And it really makes, like, every day richer, um, even if you're not personally in um, an end-of-life stage. Um, so I would just I would just tell people that um, don't be afraid to, to educate yourself and have these these discussions and and um and share that advice with everyone you know <laughs> exactly i'm going to give a, a plug for um a company i want to say they're over in australia or the uk i think it's australia um but she has put together um it, it can be an app or it can be cards and it's called your life wishes and your um your life story but it really mm. guides family and friends to have deep conversations and they're not one-sided. So, you know, if I ask you, you know, Ben, how would you like to be cared for at the end? I'm expected to say how I'd like to be cared for too. You know, so Mm -hmm. it's a natural conversation instead of, oh my gosh, we're in crisis. Answer this. I have to write it down, you know, type thing. Uh, Because I think sometimes that's how it's approached. And then, and then there's just this angst wrapped around it. Instead of having conversations and and learning from one another, different options that might be available, you know, to us with that. Now, mm-hmm. people can can get a hold of you um, by going to your website at opencaregiving.com. That's opencaregiving.com, or you can email Ben at hello at opencaregiving.com. Again, that's hello at opencaregiving.com. You are also on Facebook. So if you, you know, love Facebook, um, just put in the search bar, Open Caregiving. And same with LinkedIn. You can search under Open Caregiving as well. And um, 
you know, check out their site. They've got lots of great information and tools, um, you know, to be able to use. And if you're a provider, um, you know, hook up with them and see how they can help you get better seen as well, um, you know, with all of this. And, um, you know, have it have it in one spot. I'm I'm thrilled that Open Caregiving is, is part of Dementia Map as well. So, you know, thank you for, for sharing your knowledge and um and your services, you know, with our group because again, I I don't think any of us can do this alone. I, I think it takes a team um to provide quality of life and uh you know, there's so many issues to be addressed. Nobody can nobody yeah. can answer them all. So um, you guys really kind of dove deep in this area, and it definitely is a need. So kudos to you. Thank you, Lori, and, and thanks for having me on, um, having me on the show. And um, I'm looking forward to continuing to see all the amazing work that you do as well. Wonderful. Well, for our listeners, you know, um, if you like the show, um, click it, share it. You know, that's one of my things is. You know, don't keep good information to yourself because there's always somebody else who needs it as well. And, again, they might not look like they need it, but we don't have these conversations. So you don't really know who's mulling around stuff and, and what their caring situation is within their family and circle of friends. So just, you know, start being more authentic. Open up the door uh, so it's easier for people to grab this information. You can change the world by just doing that. So until next time, um, take care, everyone. Uh, next show on Thursday, we're going to be talking with um, an attorney, uh, Margaret Barrett from um, Safe Harbor uh, Law, and uh, we're going to kind of be going down this path, too, about uh, end of life, but just in a different area in terms of protecting your assets. So thank you all, and uh, feel free to subscribe to the show. Bye now. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.